Welcome once again to the Cognitive Bias Podcast. I'm your host, David Dylan Thomas, and today we're going to talk about the self-fulfilling prophecy. And it's related to this thing called the behavioral confirmation effect, which sounds more sciencey. But at the end of the day, it is basically this notion that you have a belief about yourself um, and the way that you behave kind of confirms that and sort of brings to pass the thing that you believe about yourself or that you believe is going to happen. Um, and this can happen in groups or can happen with like individuals. And uh, it was sort of uh, coined by this uh, sociologist, Robert K. Merton, and the 1948 article, Self-Fulfilling Prophecy, which I'll link to in the show notes on our Facebook page, which, by the way, is facebook.com slash Cognitive Bias Podcast. Um, Merton was born in 1910 to poor immigrants from Eastern Europe and raised in Philadelphia. And I bring that up because yay Philadelphia um, and also yay immigrants. Um, but the quote uh, he has from that is, uh, the self-fulfilling prophecy is in the beginning a false definition of the situation evoking a new behavior, which makes the original false conception come true, right? So it wasn't really true, but now it is because we behaved in a way um, that made it true. Um, the specious validity of the self-fulfilling prophecy perpetuates a reign of error. I love that phrase. Uh, for the prophet will cite the actual course of events as proof that he was right from the very beginning, right? So you get a little bit of the, the Texas sharpshooter fallacy kind of thrown in there for free, right? It's sort of like, I said this was going to happen, and then we all behave like it's going to happen, and then, oh, look, it happened, right? Um, and uh, the uh, example... Kind of a, an obvious example is like a bank run, right? So you have a lot of people who, you know, uh, for whatever reason, believe that a bank might be insolvent. And so they start to behave as if, it's insol if, as if it is insolvent and start taking their money out. And the more people see people taking the money out, the more other people come in and say, oh, I'm going to take my money out too. And sooner than you know it, the bank is in fact insolvent because everybody took their money out, right? Um, so it's that momentum. So the perception created the reality. Um and there's a, uh, a book, Social Theory and Social Structure, um, in which uh, Merton writes, The parable tells us that public definitions of a situation, prophecies or predictions, become an integral part of the situation and thus affect subsequent developments. This is peculiar to human affairs. It is not found in the world of nature untouched by human hands. Predictions of the return of Halley's Comet do not influence its orbit. But the rumored insolvency of Millingville's bank did affect the actual outcome the prophecy of collapse led to its own fulfillment. And what I like here is he's pointing out that um, this is like not a natural phenomenon, like that animals don't like create their own self-fulfilling prophecies, right? They just behave like, and that, you know, um, this is like one of those, you know, things that's really unique to, to, to human behavior. But I also like that it sort of points out like the limitations of the self-fulfilling prophecy, right? This doesn't change science, right? I can't sort of have a firm belief that gravity is going to shut off at 2 p.m. and then because I believed it and everyone behaved as if it would shut off at 2 p.m., we all walked off a cliff and lived. No, we didn't. <laughs> like, science doesn't care about your prophecy. And this gets really dangerous, right? Because you look at things like um, people who don't believe in, in vaccination, right? You can actually bring about the opposite. Just because a bunch of people believe that they don't need to vaccinate their kids doesn't mean they shouldn't, right? And doesn't mean that suddenly their kids will not get the measles because they didn't believe in the measles, right? Like, it, it, it doesn't work that way, but it does work for, for sort of human affairs, sort of human-driven things. So the stock market is another great example where it kind of runs on belief, right? Um, a lot of our world runs on belief and perception. So this is a very powerful, if not pervasive, um, phenomenon. Um, 
And uh, I think we've talked before um, on the podcast about different experiments where you have like a classroom setting and you tell the teacher this particular class is gifted or this particular class is not, and they behave differently. And as a result, right, because there's controls, like the class doesn't know that they've been told, that the teacher's been told that they're like special. Um, the test scores go up, right? The performance increases because they've been, the teacher's been told that the class is like that. And now, lo and behold, the class is like that because they were treated that way. So there's some, you know, some degree of flexibility there. This is called uh, the Pygmalion effect. And I'll link to one of the, the, the books about this in the, in, the, in the notes. We actually talked a couple episodes ago with Erica de France, um, PhD, about a uh, version of this when we were talking about priming effects. And how this can affect things like job interviews, right? And uh, we know where race is involved. Like if someone walks in there with the notion that, uh, you know, their prophecy is that, you know, black people are not suited for this job and a black person comes to interview for that job, they will start treating that black person as if they are not suited for the job. The black person will then see they're being treated differently and think the interview is going poorly then they'll behave in a way that makes the interview go poorly, right? And of course, the interview is now actually going poorly, right? It went from a perception to a reality very quickly. Um, and we'll talk a little more about the sort of cultural biases that can kind of feed into this. Um, but it is like this uh, weird version of the confirmation bias where instead of the, the bias coming from some other source, you've kind of just invented the bias. You sort of have this belief about an outcome and now you're just looking for evidence of that outcome, and then in the in the in the course of looking for that evidence, you're creating that outcome. Um, a variation on this is uh, the placebo effect, which is a little controversial in terms of like the efficacy of the studies, or really more the potential biases within the studies. Uh, we may do a, do an episode about that later, but um, but it is again this notion of you've been told this thing that you've taken is a pill that's going to help you feel better. And because you believe that it's going to make you feel better, you actually do feel better, right? Um, uh, another variation, and this is sort of like a, a classic, like almost um, TV trope, is, you know, a person thinks that their spouse is cheating on them and they start to behave in really obnoxious ways that then makes the spouse want to and then eventually cheat on them. So they've created the reality uh, by, by thinking of it, you know, uh, believing it in advance. Um, it's another variation, I think, we talked before about the illusion of transparency, where someone goes on stage and thinks that the audience can tell how bad they are at performing, um, when in fact the audience has absolutely no idea how nervous they are, how, how, how bad they're performing, but because the person thinks the audience is going to call them out on that, they begin to behave in a way that actually is a poor performance, and the audience only notices it because the person believes it. So they've, again, created the reality that they didn't want. Um, you also see this in like sabotage relationships where like the person doesn't think the relationship is going to go, going to work out. And so they start behaving in ways that actually make the relationship not work out. Or in the workplace, you might have a project where like the manager doesn't think the project's going to really succeed. And so they sabotage the project, but not resourcing it properly. Um, and lo and behold, it doesn't succeed. Right. Um, I think, you know, from the, you know, as I think about this, from like the, the relationship standpoint, you know, I did not have a very successful like dating life in college. And I think part of it was my own internal beliefs about like my own unworthiness or no one's going to date me. And so I would behave in ways that would sort of either turn people off or I would like sort of pick people who in the long run it would not work out with, you know, unconsciously I knew that they'd be emotionally unavailable because again, I was reinforcing this. I needed to confirm this belief that I was undateable. Right. Um, but I, I can see even in my own life how that's this has played out from time to time. Um, 
One of the interesting things about this particular bias is that it's really popular in literature, right? You can go as far back as Oedipus Rex to find, like, stories about self-fulfilling prophecies. Um, and another interesting aspect that I didn't know until I started looking into it is that it's, it's a cross-cultural um, trope, right? Not just in Western literature, but in Arabic literature, in Hindu literature, you find these stories. Often, it's a story about a king who hears a prophecy that someone is going to rise up and overthrow them, and usually like a kid, and so they go out and try to like kill the kid, and in trying to kill the kid, they actually bring about the circumstances that make the kid grow up and, and end up killing them. Like, you see that over and over and over again. It, like, across cultures, like, I just, it's a thing, apparently, to like have kings afraid of kids. But, um, but yeah, this, this as a, as a literature trope, you know, as well as psychological phenomenon is, is, is kind of pervasive across cultures. And uh, like my favorite, you know, personal pop culture versions of this I like are uh, the movie 12 Monkeys, I think is like time travel loves to play with this like notion of like, you can't change time travel. There's there's two versions of time travel, the yes, you can change things or no, you can't. So Back to the Future is very, very solidly in the no, no, yes, you can change things. And like a movie like 12 Monkeys is very solidly in the no, anything you do to go back and try to change things is actually going to bring about the thing. Like the past happened. <laughs> there's, there's no changing it. Um, but probably one of my favorite almost parody of this trope comes from an episode of the uh, Amazing World of Gumball called The Oracle. So I'm just going to have you like Google that and look it up and watch it. It is hilarious, but it's just like the most extreme version of, you know, you see this vision of the future that is so ridiculous, and yet you end up step by step feeding into and making this ridiculous future happen, and it just takes that trope to the extreme, and it's, it's great. Um, one thing I do kind of want to note about this, though, because there's a lot of kind of, you know, positive psychology or self-talk around the notion that you can use this this phenomenon to your advantage. In, in other words, like, if you believe something's going to go well, you can kind of make it go well by, you know, the right kind of self-talk and the right kind of belief. And to a certain degree, I think that's true. But it's also really important to understand, like, the cultural influence on a phenomenon like this. So, for example... When I mentor people about um, giving talks and speaking and trying to be more confident when being at meetings or presenting their work, um, and I'm speaking to um, a woman about this, I have to be very frank and say, look, um, I'm going to give you the best advice I can about you know appearing confident and, and, and presenting with confidence, but I'd be lying if I didn't tell you that you know, as a woman in the workplace, there are douchebags who, when they see a woman being confident, read that as bossy, Right? So all the kind of, you know, confidence and self-talk and sort of self-fulfilling prophecies around, you know, I am going to give, this this talk is going to go well, or this presentation is going to go well, doesn't work against, is, isn't a panacea for sexism, right? Or for racism, like in and of itself. So I'd be lying if I said, that that's one of the other limitations, right? It doesn't work against science and it doesn't work against like douchebags. Like it, it, it does have its limitations. And I think about this a lot when I think about phrases like, um, like when Henry Ford said, whether you can or you can't, or whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. And I think, again, to a certain extent that's true, but there's certain things it runs up against where it's just slow down there, right? Like there are other factors at work and it's unfair to sort of, you know, make these presumptions without understanding the cultural context. So I just, I kind of want to throw that caveat in there when, when talking about this particular, um, particular bias, because it can run into other biases <laughs> that can kind of overrule it. Um, so 
just 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 for the record. Um, before I finish, actually, I want to let y'all know that I'm going to be uh, taking this show on the road, so to speak. So I'm going to be um, talking about um, content strategy and cognitive bias at a few different places. It's a, a talk I give. So I'll be talking about that at World IA Day in Philadelphia uh, near the end of this month. Uh, in March, I'm going to be talking about it at South by Southwest. And then in April, I'm going to be talking about it at Confab in Minneapolis. So um, I will put all of those dates and links in the show notes at uh, facebook.com slash cognitive bias podcast. You can check it all out there, but I hope to see you on the road. Uh, for now, this is the cognitive bias. I'm your host, David Dylan Thomas, and we will see you next time.